0: sherry do you remember when i went to race car driving school i do what year was that do you remember
1: maybe like 99 because we were living in chicago then yeah it was, so it, was it was during the summer Yeah, and we weren't there the full summer of 2000.
0: Yeah, when I say race car driving school, it's not like I was enrolled in some nine month course. It was a it was a three day weekend, basically, Mm -hmm. and maybe four days. Yeah, something like that. Um, that was, and it was before we had kids. Mm
1: Hmm.
0: In fact, that
1: was like your fourth or fifth midlife crisis
0: already. (laughs) And he was born in 1973.
1: So do the math, people. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's a fair shot. But this one was probably the most serious. This is the first time, okay, this was the first time I ventured off the the prescribed path of go to college, get a degree, get a job in that degree. You you can't be a French major, you can't be a philosophy major like your degree is going to be in business or engineering or something where jobs abound. Um, so this was the first thing I had ever done that ventured off of that path, yeah. veered off of that path. Off of
1: that.
0: Yeah, and it was <laughs> veered mm-hmm. car driving. Yeah. Uh, it was very much a like a like a fairy tale for me. It was we had I grew up in Southern Indiana. I had been to the Indianapolis Five Hundred uh, by the time I was twenty, a dozen or so times, probably M- almost every year we went. And I just loved it and wanted to be a a car racer, even though I knew what a long shot it was and that I wasn't... Maybe you
1: could be an instructor. You
0: know, that I wasn't rich and that I didn't have... My last name wasn't Unser Andretti or one of the, you know, names that are in auto racing all the time. What were you going to say?
1: I was going to say, did your... If I hadn't known you... And knew how much you loved driving cars and race in and you know race car driving. Like I felt like you were getting practice, and you didn't really need to go to a race car school because you were doing that when, when you I were was driving was around the highway. Driving with you in the passenger seat, <laughs> Chicago especially, like weaving in and out.
0: Yeah, I did not always obey the speed limit. That's true, uh, but so the. The race car driving school was kind of like, let's go see if I could be any good at this before we make a huge investment because it would have been a huge investment of time and money. And basically we had kind of figured out, I don't know, I don't want to make it sound like we were more organized or more mature than we were in our young 20s, but we had basically figured out that it was either going to be auto racing or kids. At least that's the way I look back on it. I I didn't see how we could afford both. Plus, the auto racing would be traveling every weekend. You know, when you're in, like, the really low minor leagues, it's expensive. And every, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you're at some track somewhere in the Midwest or on the West Coast. And just driving around, dragging your car and a trailer behind you. The look on your face. I wish this was TV instead (laughs) of radio because you've got this look like... Oh my God, am I glad we didn't do that.
1: Well, I, I think that also, I, you have mentioned this before, you said it was either race cars or kids. Kids weren't even like a real consideration until halfway through like 2000, after we moved out of Chicago. Okay.
0: So you I, weren't we one were of these. I were looking at
1: it like, I had, a, I had a good paying solid job that I could have insurance through for both of us. Okay. At that point. And we lived in Chicago, so it was kind of the heart of the area where there was a big driving source. Or if we needed to fly somewhere, there were two airports and we could get competitive prices. I remember that part of the I conversation. going kind to of have to
0: drag the car with me. We were flying anywhere. Well,
1: I mean, I think if you were to like go and but, meet but, with people or... But centrally you know, was,
0: located, yes. But centrally
1: located. Um, so I think that that's where we were thinking, yeah, either you... Because you could have stayed in the job that you had, because you weren't, at, you know, you traveled and you worked from home. So that was part of it. it. Was just the job and the place that we were in at that time. What I really appreciated is that you finally, instead of just in a drunken stupor, talked about how you'd be the best race car driver in the world. Actually went and did something.
0: Yes. So now,
1: we did have some serious conversations around it.
0: Now you weren't one of these people. These people I make it sound like a negative, it's not a negative. But you weren't you didn't grow up knowing you were gonna be a mother and we were definitely having because I don't I don't honestly no. remember. So when I say or when you say that kid you weren't even thinking about kids until the early two thousands, there's a lot of people that start thinking about kids when they're five years old oh, and no. No. You weren't no. sure. Okay. I knew
1: kids were hard because my sister was older. She had kids when she was young. I was there, you know, eighth grade when my first nephew was born, so You know, I knew that that was not a path that I was going to take very lightly.
0: Okay.
1: I also knew that if I had kids that I would really struggle with working and being a mom because I grew up with a single working mother. So I wanted to be home or available a lot. So I didn't want to have this division of time. And I applaud women that can do that. That's great. I mean, it's not like I didn't work when we had kids. I mean, we owned our own business and that was a lot of work, but we had a lot of flexibility. Right. You know, so I don't look at it like in in a traditional sense of working for someone else and traveling. So I
0: really like, you know, I don't know that I've ever thought this all the way through with you. I really like the fact that you looked at kids as enough of a responsibility that you wanted to be in a position to... For the most part, be able to stay home with them, especially when they were young. Mm -hmm. Rather than... I think sometimes, you know, people look at kids as just like an accessory, like an add-on that you throw on top of your already busy life and career. Or
1: they feel obligated because of societal and familial pressures to have kids. Or especially, like I've... You know, read lots of articles about women that are like, "Yeah, people look at me like I'm crazy because I don't have kids," yeah, and that was a by choice, or they have a medical condition they can't, so they carry this guilt and this burden. It's like if you aren't having kids, then something's the matter with you, but that's not the case.
0: Well, that's cool that it wasn't just always something that you were destined to do, but when it came time to decide whether or not to have kids, it was a, it was really a you know, a, a thoughtful process for you, not just, oh, we'll have kids, we'll get a nanny, everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, everyone's got to make their own choice. So I I don't mean to sound like I'm coming out against nannies. That's not what I'm I'm trying to do. I just like how thoughtful you were. I knew
1: for me what my, pre- I thought I had a lot of limitations. Yeah. Looking back, I don't think I had the limitations I had on working in and motherhood, I think I could have done a lot more than what I would have, but I would have been burdened with a tremendous amount of guilt because I know that I am a self-guilting person. If I don't have them doing something, a self-guilting to her, guilting per-
0: isn't everybody a self? Well, person? okay.
1: Well, I don't know. There are a lot of people that say their parents give them a lot of guilt and stuff, but oh
0: yeah. But okay. I mean, I
1: feel like <clears throat> if I don't have our kids involved in stuff. And doing things, especially when they were little or having like... And, and now our youngest is 10 and, and this summer has been totally different. Um, so I feel like if I don't at least have one or two things that we're doing a week, I do get a sense
0: of feeling guilty. Oh, yeah. You, and it's well, definitely
1: I, gone away I mean, as they've gotten older and I know that this summer is different. And so there's not a lot of options.
0: But that's the, that's the point that I'm making. You took this seriously. This wasn't just... I mean, I I didn't take kids as an afterthought either, frankly, I but I always wanted to have kids. I, I have always loved babies, particularly, mm-hmm. so I guess I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it because I just kind of knew I wanted that. But the fact that you took it seriously enough to think about it, and so now if you feel guilt if there hasn't been enough activities during the week because you've been busy that ties in really well with the idea that you take the role of mother seriously and I think that's one of the things that I appreciate the most about you. Now this has been a really interesting conversation but it actually has nothing to do with what we're <laughs> trying to talk about today. <laughs>
1: like race cars and kids has nothing to do
0: with it The race that. cars was just like an intro to the idea that I had this kind of mystical fairy tale idea of what our life could possibly be. I do think the the one significance about the whole racing school piece of it was it was the first time that I veered significantly off the plan, not just my plan but the plan that was kind of set for me from birth, you know, son you're going to college and you're going to get a degree in a in a field that actually employs people and pays them a good salary. And that's the plan. And I never questioned the plan. I wasn't against the plan. I don't want to make it. But so, this going to racing school was like a kind of a revolt. Big and big we easy. didn't tell anybody about it because I felt like it was so ridiculous. I mean, I was even embarrassed about the fact that I was going because I thought everyone would laugh at me. You know, who becomes a race car driver? That's just what are you for? Like, are you. <laughs> A fireman you, or a you, guy yeah, driver? exactly so i was super embarrassed that's why i didn't tell friend i mean i didn't tell my best friends yeah. i didn't tell anybody and then and we didn't tell family because we didn't want them to worry about the danger i do i like to tell this joke now i mean when i the place i went to was road america in elkhart lake wisconsin which is one of the best road courses in all of the world it's a really renowned place but when I got there they wouldn't even let me in the gate until I had signed this 300 page waiver and I I didn't read it but I flipped through it and I kept seeing words like dismemberment <laughs> death dismemberment and you know so you had to basically sign this document that says no matter what happens if an asteroid falls on you while you're falls. on our property it is all on you yeah and so you
1: better have life insurance. Well, I
0: don't think the life insurance would have covered it, honestly. I don't I think there's probably if you look in your life insurance policy, I'm sure there's something about if you do something as stupid as auto racing or like jumping out of a plane without a parachute, then you're not covered. So anyway,
1: but this was it also did teach a lot of drive defensive driving classes other things people went out like it wasn't just oh. like they put you out there and said okay go 200 miles an hour without any instruction no so, i
0: wasn't no this was a top-notch organization yeah, so it's not
1: like you know
0: yeah i, I know, mean really. you don't get on road america without the the organization teaching being high class i mean the the seinfeld show it was skip barber was the name of the organization and uh, Jerry Seinfeld went to this place mm-hmm. went to this class yeah. or he took some class from them because there was a sticker on his or sticker a magnet on his refrigerator yeah. in every episode of the Seinfeld show said the Skip Barber racing school but I'm getting way off way off way into a tangent so anyway I signed the waiver that said no matter you know what happens even if you feed me a snack, and the snack poisons me. I can't do anything about it.
1: I choke on a raisinette.
0: That's right. It is still <laughs> not your it's fault. Still not my fault. But, so I'm way off the beaten path as far as what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And the three days was great. Learned a lot. One of the things I learned was how many steps and how far and how long it would take me in the process before we started to earn money and you know, one of the big joke sayings in auto racing is if you want to make a small fortune as an auto racer, you better start with a huge fortune because you're (laughs) going to lose most of it. So it was a wake up call, not a wake up call. I mean, it, it was perfect because it was three or four days and it taught me a lot. It let me, you know, I got to test my skills and learn, you know, how good I was as a driver, but I also got to learn that the process exceeded my risk tolerance so I came back from that and we decided within a couple of years that we'd just go ahead and have kids and I'd keep my sales job and you know we'd keep the the the, go back on the normal path the get a degree get a job have a family path that we had initially intended but so all of that intro is to talk about it as kind of a fairy tale it was it was, that was the fairy tale for me. And had we not pursued that even for the long four day weekend, I probably still would look back with regret. Yes. So I know that, I mean, I'm sure you must feel some relief because we went ahead and you know, you gave the thumbs up to do that because you don't have to hear me talk all the time about how I should have been a race car driver. I should have been a race car
1: Yes. Driver. Then we had our daughter and she was born on Memorial Day weekend, which is the weekend of Indianapolis 500. Then I had to listen to you talk to her about her becoming a race car driver that's right until there was an incident on a that injured or, or killed a child that was like in a go-kart like and that would be the steps to getting to race car. Driving.
0: Well yeah. but
1: I did feel very proud of us to like have a mature discussion. Say go for it, do it. This is your dream. Like we have money to for you to go up there for the weekend and see what happens and
0: Yeah. You know. So it, it truly it truly was a fairy tale. So that's that's the long segue to what we really want to talk about. We we with our Echoes of Recovery group, which is the group of loved ones of alcoholics that we are connected with, we we communicate with them in a variety of ways. One of the ways is we have a weekly video call. And this past week on the weekly video call, or prior to the call, we asked them to read a chapter in our book called Sober Evolution that's coming out September 23rd, and soon we will have information on pre-order. If you are a regular, intoxicated podcast listener, just check back, and maybe next time or the time after, we'll have information how you can pre-order the book. But the book's in three sections. The first section is about my act of alcoholism. The second section is about how I got sober. But the third section is about our recovery of our relationship. And so the chapter that we sent all the folks in Echoes of Recovery was from that third section. It was chapter 14 called Healing Wounds. And the, the kind of subtopics of the chapter were healing resentments dealing with your kids, helping your kids over to, to recover from al- the alcoholism of the family, trying to rebuild trust and having the a massive amount of patience that's required to get through this whole thing. And so we asked them to read that chapter with those four subheadings and we talked to them about it. Before I before I go into the, you know, what came out of the conversation, I do want to mention if this sounds like a connection that might be helpful to you if, if joining echoes of recovery is something that you're interested in check us out just read more about it at echoesofrecovery.com e c h o e s of recovery.com give you lots more information we'd love to have you join us so the the people on the call I just want to make sure that everyone understands it was a, it was fully representative of the people that are in the group we had you know we had we had people on the call that their relationship didn't survive just because your relationship ends and you go through divorce doesn't mean you don't deserve recovery and so we had people on the call that were in that situation we had people on the call whose loved one whose alcoholic husband was trying to quit and would be sober for a little while then would relapse be sober for a little while would relapse they were in that stage in the process and we had people on the call who had whose loved one had months and months of sobriety and so they were still in what i would call early recovery the first year is to me early recovery but they were way past the back and forth every day is a decision point had some months under their belt and among this this group with this variety of real life experiences that they were going through the word Fairy tale came up a few times when they were describing that this chapter of our book that this would be, you know, almost too good to be true. To picture having the conversations about resentment, sitting down with the kids, letting the kids speak their mind and say what the alcoholism had meant and done to them, trying to rebuild the trust, working on patience. They they said that several of them said that that seemed like a fairy tale, that they couldn't picture from where they sat right now getting there. Um, that really, it really, really struck me because this book, we wrote this book for not, you know, you have to be careful, right? When you describe your book, we didn't write it for everyone. A lot of, a lot of authors say this, but this book's for, it's got something for everyone. Well, our book does not have something for everyone, but it certainly has something for Alcoholics who need to find recovery and it certainly has something for people who are in alcoholic relationships either where the drinking is active or where the drinking has left the relationship and they're trying to recover the relationship. I mean that's the target audience and so the idea that people that are in that demographic looked at this chapter as an unreachable fairy tale it was kind of honestly it was kind of crushing what what were your thoughts when, when you heard that? I mean, and I, and and they'll listen to this. I don't, I don't want to make anyone feel bad for that being your impression. You know, we're going to talk more about it. I, I don't think it's the fairy tale you think it is. I I think it's very realistic, but it surprised me that that was, was the reaction.
1: I think it was very, it didn't seem surprising to me because if I had been in those people's places.
0: Well, you have been in their places. Well, I yeah. mean,
1: at, at the time of the conversation, okay, yeah. knowing all of the people that were in the conversation and their perspective, I would look at that like that was a dream in a fairy tale too. Like, but, but, so, I remember during one of the calls I made a mention that, like, but this was like 10 years of you working towards this permanent sobriety. Right. So it was a very long 10 years of you educating yourself um, about all the different aspects And so I can see why it seems like a fairy tale in some of the situations because they just won't ever imagine. I also didn't find it surprising because I feel like you're very open. I mean, obviously, you're doing this and shout sobriety and the, you know, the echoes. Like, you're very open with sharing your story and your words and your feelings. Um, Even with me personally. And intimately, like you're very good. So I think that they just don't I'm see very
0: good intimately.
1: Well, I mean, like sharing, like you what's mean being
0: good... open, being open, okay. not
1: in you know. I, that's why I hate that they use the word intimate to mean sex. Well, but
0: yeah, we've I... just struggled so much <laughs> intimately that um, uh, I thought that I thought that compliment was probably misplaced. But you mean my ability to talk about yes. our stuff, whether it's good yes. or yes, yes,
1: like that just seems shocking, but. Knowing, like, from where we were, it, it, it's not that far-fetched because, like, I couldn't even talk to my parents or to my sister about your alcoholism. I certainly didn't talk to friends. I couldn't talk to people. Couldn't, you know, couldn't even go see a counselor, you know, that we would pay for privately. You were so embarrassed by it. So it was a long ten years. And then even that first year of sobriety, no one knew. So, and it's just hard to, like, imagine that their person is going to start just being so vulnerable and open and and open to listening to your side of the story.
0: Do you remember when I had hernia surgery?
1: Oh, God, yes.
0: And I wouldn't... I had to
1: call in sick for my work. Oh, you did? Yes, I had a doctor's appointment that day because I was early pregnant. Had a doctor's appointment. You were bemoaning the whole time I was gone because you and you didn't want anybody to know. And then you said, "Why do you have to what are you going to tell your boss?" And I'm going to tell her you're ha- having hernia surgery. You're like, "No, I don't care what you tell her. Hemorrhoids or something. I don't know." Not hemorrhoids. I Not, him, said that, that. would have been worse. But you were just like, "No, just tell her cuz you have more appointment, you tests or something for
0: and be a long, you know, doctor's well, I got the hernia from getting you pregnant. So you did not. You were born with it. Good lord. <laughs> no, but I was so embarrassed to have to have a hernia. Like I was embarrassed about everything. So, I mean, I think I think you're doing a really good job by painting an accurate picture of where I was as a drinker, and it's part of drinking. It's part of alcoholism. Is You know, you know, you know something's wrong. Even when you're not to a position of being ready to admit it, you know something's wrong. So you try to keep everything else looking perfect. You and I have talked before about how we, you know, our house is much more of a disaster zone now that I'm sober and everything's going well than it was when I was drinking. Because And the kids were little. We always tried to keep this, you know this impression that everything was fine. So if somebody dropped in, they would see that the house was picked up and that there, you know, there was no chaos because we knew how much chaos was lying below the surface. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, especially the outside of the house, the lawn, I would spend hours and hours every weekend making sure that the lawn was manicured so that nobody, you know, so that if I was out at a neighborhood party and I drank too much, that people would think, "Oh, that's a one-off. Wow, that was weird how Matt Matt went a little crazy last night, but whatever, everyone does it once in a while." And then and they wouldn't think that it was a that there was a pattern to it because, "Oh, look, I don't I mean, this might sound illogical, but look at his well-manicured lawn. Clearly he's not an alcoholic." <laughs> but that that's what I had in my Considering head. Considering
1: we're probably the only people on our street that doesn't have their lawn taken care of by somebody else.
0: Well, that's, so that's true. another, but that was We've another, got some elderly people on our street. That's true.
1: Or people that find that somebody else doing it is easier for them. Um, but that was part of your impression too, was I'm doing it. I'm taking care of our house. I'm maintaining our house and look how good I do because there's that, you know, that's what you see from the
0: front. So the door. idea that I had a hernia was, it was just like a, chink in the armor it was like Like, we can't let anyone know about this because if someone knows that there's imperfection they might start looking into the drinking too they might find out about that imperfection how
1: does so much drinking make a hernia
0: yeah oh totally unrelated is
1: that what you were thinking that they would be thinking no
0: i just didn't you know because you've got this thing in your life that you're trying to hide you want everything else to come across as perfect. I can remember I remember a Monday morning at work where I spilled coffee on my sweater I was wearing and I was like, oh, that's it. Everyone's going to think I drink too much this weekend. <laughs> you know, and I look back on it now and I'm like, that's not the first thing that pops into your head when someone spills coffee on their You're sweater. like, oh, they're first wearing a white sweater. Of course they're spilling coffee yeah. on their sweater. Or it's Monday. <laughs> of course something's going to go wrong. Why'd you wear a white sweater on Monday, you doofus? Or you're just a doofus. So know, like, maybe
1: when I had my hernia surgery a few months after our fourth child was born, you were on the playground from having sex.
0: screaming, you got that hernia from having sex. screaming
1: from the top of the slide that you are the dad of four taking care of a con- convalescing wife at home. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I remember you very were very like, proud. oh, I was telling everybody because people were like, hi, how are you doing? Getting text messages. Everyone, I'm like, yeah. oh so you can blab about my hernia. Yeah. But I guess that because you were still drinking, so it painted you in a good light, too.
0: Absolutely. I, w- I was worried about me looking perfect. I wasn't worried about you looking perfect because you kind of were pretty close to perfect. Oh, yeah. You were dealing with me. Well,
1: they were probably like, after four kids, sure, you definitely deserve a hernia.
0: Yeah. Um But the the point is, we we went from a place where I I was I wouldn't let anyone know about Anything that was going on in our family, the amount I was drinking, to my hernia, you know, hid the whole race car driving thing, just everything had to be so secretive. So the fact that I talk like this now on this podcast and I write the way I do was definitely a part of that 10 year, you know, try and fail to recover evolution. And then, you know, really blossomed after I was a year into recovery when I realized. You know, this isn't really just about me. That if I talk about this, there's gotta be people that are in the same boat as me. There's gotta be people that are drinking in their basement and nobody knows about it.
1: Yeah. And we'll say very quickly, like you didn't go through a traditional like AA twelve step program where you had meetings. You were very secretive about it. So then when you realize how well you felt after being sober for so long. So so you knew there were people like you. You just didn't want it to be so hush-hush.
0: Well, early on, I didn't. Because no. I didn't think the people in the church basements in AA were like me. I pictured sad, depraved people chain-smoking cigarettes on their cold folding chairs in the damp basement eating stale donuts. <laughs> I pictured them whining to each other about how terrible their lives were <laughs> and with no hope for the future. So, I I now very, very much... I mean, I have so many friends that recovered through AA and continue to recover through AA who are just wonderful, insightful, brilliant people. So, I'm lucky to consider myself like the people at AA. But at the, at the time, I did not yeah. think I was like them. I thought I was kind of unique for holding it together. I thought this whole high functioning alcoholism thing where I still worked 60 hours a week and I never forgot to pick up my kids from soccer practice. I and thought that was some weird was perfect. unique what's that?
1: And our lawn was perfect. And our
0: lawn was perfect. And I and no one knew about my hernia. Mm-hmm. I thought I had a very unique situation but so the point is you can be you, you know just if your spouse right now You can't even dream of them being able to sit with you and go through the resentments of the time when they were drinking. If you can't even picture that either because they're still drinking now or they're newly sober and they're just quiet and they're grumpy and they're in pain and they're constantly depressed, that's what early sobriety is by the way. If they're in that stage and you can't picture them being open and and happy and willing to to work through resentments and try to build trust and deal with the kids and do all of that, it doesn't make it a fairy tale.
1: It just takes time. It
0: takes a lot of time. I wasn't even close to like that.
1: And kind of persistence. I mean, maybe I was like, maybe too it helped that I, you could see that, because our recoveries were, and transformations were on a different timeline.
0: Yours from mine, you're saying. Yeah.
1: So... Maybe you could also see that things were not progressing quite along. And so you kind of had to to be willing to listen and, and understand what I needed out of it, too.
0: Yeah. So you know, maybe
1: my persistence of just not being quite there. Yeah. And needing to really kind of explore
0: different... Yeah, yeah I mean, we... So that was the point of this chapter of the book, right? Was you and I fumbled through all this, we figured it out. I mean, we, I'm not saying we didn't read anything. We read a ton of stuff, and we read articles, and we read from psychologists, and we read memoir, just other people who had been through it. So, so we got advice from everywhere we could could get it. But still, we didn't really find a roadmap for how you work through this stuff. And that's what that's what this book is about. That's what specifically this chapter of the book is about. Is a roadmap. Here is how you work from. Okay, your loved one is sober, has been sober for some time now, and here's how you work from this really painful. My gosh, I didn't expect this, but our marriage got worse when he got sober. To a, a peaceful, contented place that takes time to get there. So that's you know that's the purpose of this chapter. That's the thing that that we fumbled through for sure. But we didn't, you know, we didn't know that's where we were going. We didn't know we were going to get there. We didn't, we didn't see the writing on the, we didn't see it as a fairy tale because we didn't even know if it was possible. Is that a fair way to say that? Right. Some of the things that when we had this discussion with our friends and Echoes of Recovery, some of the things that they talked about that made it seem fairy, fairy tale like was they couldn't picture their loved one, their their drinking spouse or ex-spouse. They couldn't picture that person having the emotional maturity to realize how much damage had been done. And that absolutely 100% fits with our relationship. When I got sober, I expected the sobriety to fix everything. You knew that wasn't in the cards. You knew that sobriety wasn't going to fix anything. But I thought and I've said it a million times now, I quit drinking for you, Sherry, what more do you want? I thought, I still thought I was like God's gift to you as a woman because I had blessed you with my presence and oh, by the way, now I'm not drinking either, so aren't you even more blessed? I mean, that sounds super arrogant. That's kind of what was going on in my head. As it's, it's embarrassing to admit. So when, you know, I had no idea that that you had slowly over time grown not only not attracted to me, but you had grown to loathe me in many ways. And it wasn't just the drinking. Sure, the drinking exacerbated things. And had I not been a heavy drinker, an alcoholic, maybe you wouldn't have grown to be so unattracted to me. But everything about me, I mean... You didn't like the way I looked. You didn't like the way I talked. You had just grown to kind of loathe me. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You don't want to elaborate, elaborate, get any more shots in on me? (laughs) No. I'm doing a good enough job of...
1: Yeah. I mean, I respected you with with some parenting stuff. Like, I didn't find you a loathsome father for most of the time, but yeah, like... Your arrogance and and your need to control because of the anxiety from drinking. Right. Like, that just overtook the personality you had that just...
0: Ugh. It was a total turn-off? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, I, I mean, turn-off sounds like I was constantly turned on by you. But, no, I think it was just like you became somebody that I wouldn't choose to spend time with. Yeah. You wouldn't be my friend. And I remember, like, us having lots of arguments and spats about... You wouldn't be somebody that I would want to hang out with. I'm only here because I'm married to you and we have kids.
0: So if you had met me somewhere in the middle of all of this, there's no way you would have married me.
1: Yeah. I mean, how, why how would much I... How does that suck?
0: You're married. You're like... And you, you and I have talked about we take marriage very, very seriously. We both do. and We're not here to judge anyone for any decision that they make about staying or going. We totally respect that everyone's situation is individual and you've got to make... If if divorce is the right decision, then divorce is the right decision. I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago, but I firmly believe that now. But for you and I personally, we took marriage very seriously. How did that feel to say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person and if I met him today,
1: there's no way
0: I would marry him?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that I was saying I'm going to spend the rest of my life with him because... I mean, I was just kind of going through—I wouldn't say one day at a time, but sort of week by week, or you know, yeah, like so. Like, even is this as gonna seriously get worse? as you but, took yeah. marriage,
0: you still were questioning whether. Yeah, be-
1: like how? If I would have met you, yeah, there's no way I would have, and it would have been like he is a blowhard, dumbass who thinks he's so smart and so witty and so charming, and he's just a drunk lush. Like that's what I would have thought.
0: So when we had this discussion this week with our Echoes of Recovery friends and they talked about the fact that they're, they worry about in some cases, this wasn't everybody on the call. I don't want to paint this into, you know, this generalization that doesn't exist, but they, but there was conversation about the emotional maturity their loved one not having that level of emotional maturity to see how much damage had been done I was right there I didn't have the emotional maturity to see how much damage had been done
1: Right right Well we're I just remember a very pivotal conversation that was from you surprised me and we went out of town for my 40th birthday and I remember having of course an argument because of the lack of partying that I wanted to do um, the weekend that we were away without the kids. And I remember saying to you, this was almost nine years ago, um, because we did it for my birthday, like saying to you, we have so many other problems now besides your alcohol. Mm -hmm. And you didn't want to hear it. You acted like if it was just the drinking, it was just the drinking. I didn't like the drinking. You couldn't handle the drinking. So it's just the drinking. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, you don't understand how much I can't be around you. And I remember, like, you know, one of your comments during our argument was, like, if you didn't make the plans, then nothing would get done about events like this. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh my god, right there is a good representation of the person that you had become. This know-it-all, arrogant bastard, basically, that... I'm just so repulsed by... And the only good moment of that weekend... um, You know, and I obviously wasn't good at saying It was like... You know, you like... Didn't feel like that was exciting enough. But you didn't know. Like, I didn't want exciting. We had like a one-year-old. And, you know, three other kids. So I just needed to relax. And hang out with you. The person that you were. When I met you. Yeah. But that was... You know, that was nine years ago, so thinking about where we were nine years ago to where we are now, it definitely seems unattainable, but it's just, it's you take a lot of time and a lot of patience and knowing that, you know, yeah. that little bit ago you didn't want to even understand or you couldn't even fathom that it
0: was more than just drinking. Yeah, I definitely did not have the emotional maturity I mean, because like we've talked about many times, alcohol stops your emotional growth at whatever point you start drinking alcohol. So, you know, I was emotionally a 17-year-old or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I just I couldn't see the forest through the trees, as they say. I had no idea how much damage was done. And so, and you're right, it, it has taken a lot of time. You know what else? I was not able to understand when I was drinking heavily I wasn't able to understand the mama bear instinct and I don't want this to come across as sexist but I do believe that men and women have different sets of hormones different drivers and I also believe that this is not universal I believe that there are women who instinctually act like men and men who instinctually act like women I'm not explaining that very well but as a man I didn't understand the level of protectiveness that you Sherry felt for our kids and I have since after lots of conversations with lots of people come to believe that that is a that that's a very typical reaction so so when when i was drinking if i was to discipline one of the kids or tease them too much and you know again there there was never any physical abuse i never i never beat the kids nothing like that never any psychological abuse either but if i was to dwell on a topic for too long boy that would that would really really hurt you and you would come out you know claws out to defend that and I thought as parents that we were equal that we both felt the same way about the kids and it's taken well into my sobriety before I've learned it's it's not exactly equal it's you know the mothering instinct is a force to be reckoned with and so that's another piece of it that you know was just out of my reach when I was actively alcoholic. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. You know, because in nature, most of the time, it's the females that raise the cubs and then the males go off. And, you know, sometimes if they encounter their own father, you know, biological father, like the father will try to attack the, the you know, little one of the animal even. So I think that that is very natural, but I also think that too for me, like it was because I had put so much thought and and effort in emotional investigating like how much I would put up with for the kids and like if I wanted kids and you know, would I want to have a career or would I want to have kids? So I definitely felt like since I chose the path to be a mother and you kind of always thought it was just a given that we would have kids after we were married um I definitely felt like that was my course, was to protect them even more. Yeah. Because, you know, I really did, and you know, was honest with myself about whether or not I wanted to have kids. Because, I mean, even before we had kids, I knew that you drank more than I was ever comfortable with. Yeah. So I had to kind of weigh my options. That I knew, going into it, if I'm choosing him to have kids with, I know that I'm going to have to... Be extra vigilant. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that, and I see that now, and I, I love it. Actually, I appreciate how your, you know, a, a great example. One of our kids a few weeks ago was riding his bike, and he ran into a parked car, and he dented the hood of this parked car with his bike helmet and I mean it made a huge dent like half of the hood was dented. We can laugh now because he's fine. Yeah he's fine. He
1: didn't even have a scratch or nothing embarrassed.
0: He He did great. He rang the doorbell of the house that the car was in front of and he owned up to it right away and he called me and I went down there and I did you know I am proud of myself I guess. I don't know. I'm not proud of myself but on the phone I asked him if he was okay and when I got down there I looked him looked at him and said are you okay Joey and he said yeah but then that was the full extent then I went on to the insurance and talking with the driver about her dent and what body shop she might need to use and do we I don't even know if I'm covered for this because I wasn't driving my car and all of that kind of conversation and changing exchanging information and when I and I let Joey right off to meet the friend that he was meeting up with. And when I got home, it was this was just a few blocks from the house. So short drive home, when I got home, I was like, huh. I didn't even like concussion test him. And
1: you're a soccer coach for high school. As a high
0: school soccer coach, I have to take concussion test training every single year. Considering we
1: know that our kids, as much as we lecture them, they don't wear their helmets the right way. But all the time. But that's pretty funny.
0: So I so I just felt like, and, and, and so now, now that I appreciate the differences between your instincts and my instincts, I, I you know, felt really bad because I thought, oh, Sherry is going to kill me. She would have, she wouldn't even have talked, you, Sherry, you wouldn't even have talked to the other driver. You would have been all up in Joey's grill and looking <laughs> in his eyes and hugging him and making sure he's okay. Maybe after five minutes of that, you would have acknowledged the driver of the car who wasn't in the car it wasn't it was a parked car parked
1: terribly along the street by the
0: way it's her fault for parking terribly right (laughs) but so there are there are just differences and and maybe i shouldn't generalize maybe there are differences between me and you but i gotta tell you i'm pretty sure those differences extend and they are typical in in married couples the like i said the mama bear instincts are different than the papa bear and that was stuff that i well and i think I just didn't know when I, I think was it's
1: exaggerated because i'm the female non-drinker of the relationship so i think it could be that you know if you're in a situation where you're married and you have kids whoever is the non-drinker knows that they have to be extra protective
0: yeah of the kids too that's true there is that but i think that that is much more typical when it's the woman that's the non-drinker I just do. Maybe I'm going to get hate mail for saying this, but because I know there are women that are alcoholics. I do know that. And I know that there are men that suffer as the loved ones, but that's not the majority of the cases. And that's not what you and I have experience with. Before we move on, and I, I want to cover one more thing. I want to talk about kind of a profound and impactful thing that happened That helped me make the change to go from being this oblivious, emotionally immature, you know, person who was a million miles away from the place we are now where we've dealt with resentments and kids and trust and patience and all of the things that seem like a fairy tale. I want to talk about how that change took place in me for us. But before I do before we totally leave the discussion about the Echoes of Recovery group I want to say one more thing. We work really hard to make sure that this group is not just a bitch fest about the love, you know, from the loved ones of alcoholics about the alcoholics. And and this group has said some really really wonderful thing about their alcoholics. And you know, been very complimentary. And so when I, you know, I'm feeling a little bad that I've referenced our Echoes of Recovery group because of this project for them to help us with this chapter 14 and read and give us their impression. And when I talk about them seeing the, where, you know, getting through this cycle to the happy ending as a bit of a fairy tale, I don't want it to sound like these are people that just complain about their loved ones all the time absolutely to the contrary these are people that really love the alcoholics in their lives even even the ones that have moved on and divorced and are still co-parenting co-parenting together they they have a lot of great things to say so it's not just it, complaining it's not just whining. complaining and whining it's just not It's this is a positive place and a positive environment and some really 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 impressive people that have joined us in Echoes of Recovery that are, are trying to heal and be honest. So on to what, you know, what happened that allowed me to kind of morph and make this change and realize that we needed to deal with the resentments and the kids and the trust and the patients. After I was a year sober, over a year sober, I started noticing some changes that were taking place with me. A lot of my depression started to clear up and that's pretty easy to explain. The neurotransmitters that control our pleasure center in our brain, they start to repair after a year of sobriety, roughly a year of sobriety. There's no, it's not exactly a year, but in many, many cases, it's around a year of sobriety. The, the neurotransmitter function starts to return to near normal. And so when that happened, a lot of the depression went away. A lot of my anxiety went away too. I stopped just being stressed about every little thing, every little moment. And along with that, the, my need to be in control of every situation just kind of evaporated. I stopped caring what people thought about me. I mean, that that's an easy one to explain, right? When you're not constantly trying to hide the secret of your addiction, because you're not drinking anymore. You stop worrying about what people think. I completely stopped mowing the lawn. I let weeds grow and <laughs> I parked an old broken down car in the front yard, put it up on cinder blocks and let the You
1: didn't let the weeds grow. You let the kids learn to mow the lawn and so it wasn't the perfection that you Well, had that before, part's but. true.
0: You're right. I didn't, but. I didn't lose a car on blocks in, into the weed infested yard. <laughs> but I didn't care as much about that kind of stuff. And my temper wasn't as short, I just wasn't, you know, anxiety is, you know, has many facets of ways that that is revealed externally, and all of that anxiety-like stuff, that control need, that that temper, all of it dried up and went away, and when that happened, I was like, whoa, that can only be attributed to one thing, that has got to be this long-term sobriety that I'm in, you know, nothing else had changed. So it was profoundly impactful and it made me look at our relationship differently too and say, you know, gosh, I thought that it was just the alcohol that was causing us all these problems. The alcohol went away and the problems got worse. So why don't I dig in here? Let me ask Sherry some questions. Why don't, Let me ask you some questions about from your side of the street, what's causing these problems? And, you know, I actually listened to the answers and here's the reason because that monster that existed when I was in active alcoholism, because that monster had gone away when I stopped drinking, I was more open to exploring other things about reality that I figured had been hidden away while I was drinking. Is that making sense? I feel like I'm not explaining that particularly well.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: do you agree that I'm not explaining it I, particularly? I agree. You're not explaining it well.
1: I mean, I understand what you're saying about the monster that you that was hidden and you know, that came out when you were drinking, but
0: you know, so here's here's an example. Enlightened. When when I when I was drinking, even when I wasn't drinking, when I when I was in active alcoholism, even when I would be sober, if you did something that frustrated me, I would have to fight off the urge to say mean things to you, or to be crass, or to be rude, or short-tempered, because those were all things that lived just right below the surface in me that I was constantly trying to hold back on. Mm-hmm. And then when those went away, and you could do things that frustrated me, and I I didn't fly off the handle, and I didn't I didn't have a short temper, and I was like, whoa, you know, things are things are really changing. That's. That's when the emotional maturity, I guess, came in. Mm -hmm. And I started to say, okay, you know, you've said, Sherry, that alcohol going away isn't going to solve all of our relationship problems. Alcohol going away on a long-term basis has solved a lot of my personal internal problems. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So tell me more about what it's going to take to solve our relationship problems and I was much better at listening I know for a fact I know a lots and lots of stories of people who even when their loved one their alcoholic loved one isn't drinking they still are hard on the kids or they still are emotionally immature or fly off the handle that when that goes away when the, in, the inclination to do that goes away you just become more curious What else am I missing? Let's talk about it. You want to talk about resentments? You want to talk about something that happened 10 years ago that was really bad and still causes you pain? Let's do it. And I'm not going to just wallow in guilt about it because that person that I was doesn't exist anymore. The monster's gone, so I can talk about it. I can feel confident talking about it. I'll apologize. I'll feel bad about it. But I don't have to hide and shy away from it anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. They do any better the second time? Yeah, that's better. Thanks, thanks. So this idea that it's a fairy tale that that um, getting to this point of emotional maturity and dealing with the resentments, kids' trust and patience that that's out of reach for your relationship as a listener. It's not. It takes time. It takes it takes some serious time and sobriety it takes effort but it, it's not it's not some fairy taleish thing that only we have figured out no, nothing could be further from the truth i'm the guy that hid my hernia from my coworkers you know not only you talked about how you had to take off work when i went back to work after that i just told him i took a day off or whatever when i went back to work i couldn't button my pants cuz my <laughs> my waist was so swollen from <laughs> surgery that I remember we had to like rig a rubber band or something around
1: (laughs) good thing I was pregnant so I knew how to extend your waistline but
0: yeah and I I only wore like untucked shirts or sweaters so they could cover my waist so Mm -hmm. nobody could see that I had the rubber band contraption Oh yeah that guy that guy right there that's hiding something as simple as a I'm just going to tag
1: on really quick. It's not a fairy tale because it can happen. (laughs) You just need the patience. Oh, I thought you were going to say
0: because it's not all that great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because that's where I wanted to, like, kind of wrap up saying when I was hearing these women that were on the call that had voiced that about, like, imagining their husband, um, you know, because that was – that's, like, the intimate conversation and intimate relationship about, like, my husband would never – I don't think they'd be able to do that. It's not It's not a fairy tale because, I mean, it wasn't a fairy tale because it was 10 years of learning and yeah. and doing and working. So it, it's a fairy tale if we said, oh, it took us a week.
0: Yeah. That but, would be
1: a lie because that's what a fairy tale is.
0: But the point of this book is to help people. But if you're patient maybe, and
1: you stick to it and you, you keep working and working together...
0: It, but it doesn't and have to be ten years. That's why we wrote the book. Yeah, it can be a year maybe instead of ten years. But but you're right. It's not going to be a week. It's not going to be a week.
1: Yeah, I would say a year would be quick. Very quick. I yeah. think because of the pace of the recovery from the drinker and the non drinker and the healing. I think I think it takes a little bit longer. But
0: that's fair. But then also but you, having you, the roadmap makes it yes. shorter than it otherwise would and you have been.
1: still have to work at it too. You do you definitely because marriage isn't a fairy tale. That's right. Uh, relationships are hard.
0: Yeah. That's right. What well, you know, the thing I wanna end on is be just because it worked for us, it's not our job to tell people and you know when people contact us and they ask questions you know, how did you make it? And then they want to tell us their situation and say, here's, here's my exact situation. What should I do? And we always say, you know, we're, we can't tell you whether to stay or to go. We can't tell you whether to stick it out or get divorced. So we, we're not here to tell you to hang on because it's definitely going to end like it ended for us. Well, and it's not over for us. We're still working on lots of stuff. But hope is okay no matter how bad it seems right now hope is okay and that even applies I, you know we know of people that are uh, that have gone through divorce as part of this process but that divorce doesn't mean you don't love the person necessarily sometimes you don't anymore and that's fine too but even if you're divorced it's okay to hold on to hope it's okay to to you know to learn these tools and 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 think that this could turn out the way you want it to. And I just I hate the idea of anyone ever feeling ashamed of feeling hope. Because you always felt hope, Sherry, even in the darkest of times. You were hopeful. You had that in the back of your mind, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely had hope.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean Yeah, cuz just severing a relationship that's a that's a lot. Yeah. Whatever the relationship is, whether it's your dad, that's the alcoholic, it's just, it, you know, or mom or yeah. my spouse, it's, you have to have hope, too. Yeah. Because, you know, things don't always work on our time schedules.
0: Yeah.
1: You have to have that patience.
0: No, Sherry, I have given up hope on the idea that I'm ever going to win the Indianapolis 500.
1: <clears throat> well, that's good.
0: I think that... That is over for us, for me. Yeah. Sad, but true. Yeah. But that's okay. We'll, we'll just be, we'll be happy with the relationship recovery because that's way better than even winning the Indy 500. Mm. If you want to support us in this work, in this relationship recovery work, our goal to crush the stigma associated with alcoholism and make this conversation open and available to everyone... If it's something you appreciate and you believe in and you want to support us, we would love your financial support. We are a 501c3 fully tax-deductible uh, nonprofit organization, and you can make a donation at thestigma.org backslash donate if you are interested. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis, and we'll talk to you again next time.